where black people at the time of the hearing made up 28% uh, of the population. So 28% black population, 82% black stops. Those are stark statistics. The panel of the Court of Appeals agreed that those were stark statistics. If you're doing a prima facie burden, those statistics are enough to raise the inference that there's discrimination. And then um, the officer can explain, well, you know, my district has more black people and that's why this happened. Or, you know, these were people who called me to come help them and so that's what I was doing. I was just following my job. Or I was told by so-and-so that this is what I need to do. You know, the officer at the second stage would be offering reasons for why these statistics look bad, look discriminatory. Um, and in this case, that didn't happen. The officer did not offer any evidence. His, uh, the state's attorney made some arguments, but no evidence was actually presented. Part of that may be because no one knew what the framework was and he was assuming that he didn't have to put on evidence or maybe he didn't have anything useful to say. He was asked at the hearing, you know, do you know the Southeast district where you primarily work? Do you know the breakdown of the races there? And he said, no, you know, that would have been an opportunity to say, yes, I do. And here's why. And this is why, you know, these arrests don't look good if you're just looking at the raw numbers from the population of the city of Raleigh. But, but if the, if the, if the officer is not patrolling citywide, mm -hmm. why would the city's population be the <coughs> benchmark? Right. So for the traffic data, I mean, there's, there are three answers to that. One is he wasn't only patrolling in the Southeast district. He also patrolled in the North, West District. So right there, that sort of shoots down that argument. Um, the second problem is that these statistics are collected pursuant to a North Carolina statute that was passed about 20 years ago that requires um, police officers, uh, police departments to collect data. And the statute only requires them to report the city or the county where it happened. And the intent of the statute, and this is discussed in some of the um, amicus briefing, is to get at this very problem. And if the statute that the legislature passed was designed and used the geographic limit of a city, if you're saying, or if someone is saying that Mr. Johnson can't rely on that at all, you know, how is anyone ever gonna prove this? If, if the data were kept by police district, then sure, he could have submitted the southeast district data and the northwest district data and done a mathematical, you know, calculation about what should have been the right number of stops, but that data isn't available. Or if it is, it, it's certainly not in the database that is kept. If that information exists, it's in the possession of the southeast district of Raleigh or the police department who might know which officers were assigned there, right? It's a good example of why it's unfair to ask Mr. Johnson to, to explain away the statistical disparity when he can't. He doesn't have that information. So either the burden has to shift or there should be some kind of discovery or some mechanism 
allowing him to show the distinction. So the data that's kept, the fact that he worked in the Northwest District, um, right, and the fact that the data is in the possession of the state in this case, and probably in many cases. Um, if Mr. Johnson had known ahead of the hearing that he had to find that data, maybe there's a way he could have done so. Maybe he could have hired a statistician who studied the census and, you know, I don't know how someone gathers that data, but at least if he had known ahead of time, he could have tried. But, you know, my game example, right, he wasn't told until after the hearing was over and the trial court found this federal district court case, which has since been overruled, by the way, and said, we're going to use that rule. You had to show a district and you didn't. You said that there were two benchmarks mm -hmm. that he offered. Right, thank you. The second one is the stops um, pursuant to this same statute um, for the entire city of Raleigh collected from 2002 to 2018. There were approximately 1 million stops recorded um, and 46% of those from all the officers during that time were stops of black drivers compared to the black population of Raleigh at the time, which was 28%. I would contend to you that 46% versus 28% is also a very stark statistic. And that takes into account, you know, maybe geographical differences that are around the city. Um, and that reminds me of the one other thing, which is when you're using traffic stops, people don't just drive in the police district where they live, people drive all over town. And so, you know, it might be one thing if you're talking about arrests, um, you know, at certain locations for people walking around or that sort of thing. But when people are driving, um, the officer testified part of his Southeast District included um, Newburn Avenue and one of the Northwest corridors where people are driving from out of town. So you can't use the population of the Southeast District when you're comparing it to traffic stops where people are driving and moving around. I talked about that in the brief a good bit. Um, so, um, two, two questions. Mm -hmm. uh, is this a traffic stop case? And if not, then what's the relevance of right. the data that you're discussing? It's not a traffic stop case. I mean, it's very close to a traffic stop case. He was in his car, but because it was parked, it wouldn't be included, I think, in the data collection. But it's statistical evidence that raises an inference that this officer tended to focus on investigating black people as opposed to a more equitable, uh, more equitable way of investigating. That's the relevance. You know, we don't have, you know, this is the data we have. There's no way to, to um, well, there is a way. We, the um, defense lawyer had someone look at all the arrests by the same officer, and 81% of those, you know, oddly coincident with the 82% were also of black people. I acknowledge that that's different because some of those probably are calls for service um, maybe the 
black population of the Southeast District is higher than it is citywide. I mean, having lived in Raleigh, I would suspect that's true. But that information, again, is in the officer's possession, not Mr. Johnson's possession. He doesn't know what the basis of those calls were. So if you're looking at prima facie or even a preponderance of evidence showing discrimination, I believe Mr. Johnson clearly submitted that and the state did not respond to it. They did not offer any evidence to explain this very stark disparity. That's an unusual case. You know, if we're talking about a Batson case or an employment discrimination case, usually the person, you know, who has a claim made against them will come forward and say, well, these are the reasons why, but and this is a rare case where that didn't happen. When you say service calls being figured in, are you also figuring in to that description dispatch calls that the officer would have gotten that he was summoned or directed to go somewhere that was not of his choice? Sure, sure. I mean, and that's a fair um, comment on the statistics about the arrest. It's not really a fair comment on the traffic stop statistics, especially when you look at the citywide data for this officer as opposed to the citywide data for all police over a period of 16 years, and he's almost double the rate. Um, How should this court look at then all of the variables that would go into this officer's stops uh, as opposed to the ability to make sure that there is an accurate representation in terms of legally being fair to the governmental entity as well as to your client. Mm -hmm. The Johnson versus um, Holmes case from the Fourth Circuit um, that's cited in the brief talks about some of that and um, really gets into the weeds about the types of statistics. And you know, one point they make is if you re you could require officers to put even more information into the database and have you know tiny ways to discriminate between this kind of stop and that kind of stop, um, you know, there has to be a limit to how much information can be collected. And that's a burden on officers having to enter that sort of information. And so the statute was written, I think, to find the right balance there, um, to be able to collect enough data to show you what you want to know without overburdening and having so many distinctions between every stop that it, you know the data turns out to be meaningless. Are you talking about going forward or are you talking about what's available in this case? Um, well, it's not in the record in this case because Mr. Johnson didn't have access to it and the state didn't offer it. I don't know what information the state might have had that would have been able to explain it and that's part of why it should be their burden to say, well, you know, look, this is my list of you know, that the list of stops was attached to the amended motion to suppress. And the officer certainly could have said, well, you know, this one, this one, and this one, I looked back in our records and I was called to those. And this one, this, you know, he could have explained it. That's why it should be his burden and not Mr. Johnson's. And so if you're going to allow proof by statistics, you have to accept that statistics aren't perfect. Right? They're raising an inference, and that's especially when they are stark, which is what the United States Supreme Court said. And I contend that these are extremely stark 
Um, and if there are no questions, I'll save the rest of my time and answer more in rebuttal. Thank you. Thank you, Council. We'll hear from the appellee. May it please the court, uh, my name is Matthew Tolchin. I am an attorney with North Carolina Department of Justice and I represent the state in this matter. Um, Your honors, before I begin, I, I'd like to extend my thanks to this court and Ms. Vandenberg for the courtesy that they showed in continuing the hearing back in February. My uh, father ended up passing away that Tuesday evening when oral arguments was supposed to be scheduled and I had, because of this court's action, Ms. Vandenberg's consent, I was able to be there for the last couple of days. and so. For that, I extend my thanks. Um, now turning to the case, uh, your honors, um, at bottom, this case is about a defendant who having lost his motion to suppress, seeks a second bite of the apple through a selected enforcement complaint. And the trial court was right to deny the defendant's motion dismissed based on equal protection grounds. And the Court of Appeals properly affirmed um, that denial. And this court should likewise do likewise for three main reasons. Um, first, the defendant can't and did not overcome the high burden of showing that his constitutional rights were flagrantly violated as required by North Carolina law. Um, and second, the Court of Appeals followed well-established case law and applied the generally accepted standard for select informant cases, and that's notably that the defendant must show that the police conduct was motivated by discriminatory purpose and had a discriminatory effect. And finally, third, the defendant failed to show a prima facie case of discrimination, and he failed to do so under any of the tests discussed by the parties. Um, turning to the, to the first point, your honors, um, under North Carolina law, a defendant seeking dismissal has the burden to show, and I quote, constitutional rights have been flagrantly violated and there is such irreparable prejudice to the defendant's preparation of his case that there is no remedy but to dismiss the prosecution. And that's North Carolina General Statute 15A954. And the record in this case clearly shows that the defendant filed a motion to suppress pursuant to North Carolina General Statute 15A974 and a motion to dismiss the indictment pursuant to 15A954 for violation of equal protection. Accordingly, he had the burden of showing the flagrant constitutional violation and irreparable prejudice, and he failed to do so. Even regardless, the Court of Appeals followed established case law in ruling he failed to adduce sufficient evidence of discriminatory purpose and effects. Excuse me. It's real, well established, uh, despite uh, counsel defendants um, attempt to say otherwise that it's well established that to prove a selective enforcement claim, defendant must show the officer's uh, excuse me, conduct had discriminating effect and was motivated by discriminating purpose. And it is also well established that establishing discriminating effect requires a showing that similarly situated individuals of a different race were treated more favorably. And the even courts in this state have recognized that the burden of proof is a clear preponderance of proof. And that means the defendant needs to establish that in order for the burden to shift. 
So it's not the fact that there is separate test out there. What we're talking about is the standard of proof required. Um, and I would submit that the defendant didn't meet that standard, nor, and, and as we discussed the statistics, meet the inference of discriminating effect. And in its brief, um, defendant, in his brief, the defendant talks a lot about Bastin. But the Bastin case, line of cases, is completely inapplicable to this case. Um, jury selection cases are fundamentally different from selection, select enforcement. And one of the reasons is that the burden is higher in select enforcement cases is because of the remedy, the outcome sought. Here, the defendant seeks to dismiss the case, get outright dismissal. Also, another important difference is that in closed section, uh, the, the jury selection process is in a very closed setting. The evidence available to the defendant is fairly limited. And that is absolutely not the case in select enforcement. There are numerous variables, as Justice Morgan touched on, and therefore, for because there's so many variables, the burden of proof is higher. So only after meeting the burden of proof of showing whether it's by clear evidence, preponderance of the evidence, or otherwise, does the burden then shift to the state. In, so, in the state's view, how could a, def a defendant you know, meet this higher burden? Are, are you essentially saying that he has to have direct evidence um, that the, where the officer says, yes, I stopped him because I saw he was a, a black individual sitting in a car and because of his race, I stopped him. Is that the only way to meet the burden of, of the, this high burden that you're asking us to adopt? <coughs> no, Your Honor, and I think the case law makes it clear that there's several different ways of doing it. Um, and in this case, though, we're talking only about statistics. And in case law, if, and this is, um, and I'll read a quote from, it's the, the Johnson case that, that both parties spent a lot of time talking about. Um, actually, I apologize, it's from the Hare case. Uh, it's, it's a Fourth Circuit case, United States v. Hare. In that case, it's a discovery, relates to discovery, but in that case, the Fourth Circuit discusses how propond, uh, select prosecution cases uh, are different, but it adopts the standards set forth in select prosecution for select enforcement. And there are many other cases, courts across the country, that have adopted that same standard. But uh, and in, in analyzing the select the statistics set forth by the defendants in that case, and this case involves a, a fake uh, stash house sting, whereas the the, the police uh, they got a couple of defendants and who have recruited other defendants to try to knock over a stash house that didn't exist. Um, and in the case, um, and I quote, as a general matter, in cases involving discretionary judgments essential to the criminal justice process, statistical evidence of racial disparity is insufficient to infer a discriminatory purpose. And so when you're talking about a case that only involves statistics, it necessarily has to be uh, a high bar in order to shift the burden. Well, but, but, but I, as I understand the argument here, um, they're not saying that the statistics alone prove everything they need to prove in order to show that this is discriminatory conduct and that his rights to equal protection under the law were violated. They're saying that is just what triggers further inquiry, additional information about what this officer was doing 
can then be, he then has the burden to come forward and say, no, this is why this was not racially discriminatory. So, but, so statistics are just the starting point. They're not the entire case. Correct, Your Honor, but the statistics, statistics are just numbers. It's how you use those numbers or what those numbers represent, which is important. And as we discussed thoroughly in our brief, and, and I can touch on a lot of it now, the reason the statistics in this case, and this is the Court of, the court of Appeals recognized that, that the defendant failed to establish a prima facie case, not only by um, what I would say the clear evidence handled, but the Court of Appeals recognized that um, the statistics didn't support an inference of discriminatory purpose in effect. And the reason for that is, and uh, I think Justice Allen talked about this, and, and, and defense counsel acknowledges, this is not a traffic stop case. I mean, th so any attempt to uh, use traffic stop data or statistics is not, is not proper because it doesn't well, reflect on the case that is, this is involved. So none of those, none of the 86 to 26 means anything with regards to the case at hand. It just doesn't. So that's why statistics, I mean, it's a double-edged sword. It's how you use data and how you use numbers. Otherwise, it's just a plain number without any meaning, which is what the Court of Appeals decided, that, that those numbers, maybe on its face, they look like invidious discrimination. But once you deep in, dig into it and apply the well-established tests, it doesn't show discriminatory purpose or discriminatory effect. Well, let so, me, so let me go back to my original question, because let's just be clear on the facts. We are talking about the same officer, right? It is this officer's traffic stops that, that the statistics relate to, correct? Uh, Your Honor, th there's several different pieces of evidence. Uh, the data that they collected pursuant to four, was it 143B is traffic, traffic stop data. Correct, okay, so but the, 80, the 82 and 81 percent right. of the stops, that is this particular officer. Uh, correct, Your Honor. And, the and, and so then my question is, if, if the allegation is that this officer engaged in the enforcement activity that occurred in this case mm -hmm. because he was motivated by his perception of the race of the defendant, and you're saying, well, evidence of other people he stopped is totally irrelevant, what, what, what evidence would be relevant to showing this officer's motivation, or is it just something that can never be proven? Your Honor, I, yeah, and I apologize if you misunderstood. I didn't say that the race of the traffic, the, the, his, the people that he stopped were irrelevant. I'm saying they're irrelevant in this case, and the reason for that is traffic stop data does not have any bearing on terms of the nature of this case. So if you want to look in, 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 in the ACIS data, um, which they, they tend to, put forward as evidence of uh, support is, is again, it doesn't, the evidence doesn't say anything about other officer for comparison. It doesn't say anything about the natures of the crimes. It doesn't say anything about the location of where, that, where they took place. And it didn't say anything about the types of cases or the types of charges, let alone the officer's role. And so that's the type of information you need in order to have a proper, compar the proper comparison. Well, but and, isn't the fundamental question here what was motivating this particular officer? 
and and the the proof then of his other behavior isn't that relevant to what was motivating him on this instance what, what you're trying what you're saying you have to prove discriminatory effect and in order to do that using statistics on their own you need to have a comparison you need to have a benchmark population and that's discussed not i mean the court of appeals recognized that but the johnson case talks a lot about that chavez talks a lot about that too and you have to have the proper the, the, the power, in this case, the population too large. You talk about the 82% rate for traffic stops of black drivers. It compares that to both the, the Raleigh Police Department whole and Raleigh's 28% black population. But that the focus needs to be on where this occurred, which is in the Southeast District. There is nothing comparing his rate of, of where he was assigned to patrol and where these, the stops occurred, Southeast District, there's no adequate population benchmark to assess a racial comparison of those drivers. And so if you're just saying, if you're looking at that 86%, it doesn't have any basis of meaning unless you have the right framework. And the framework was, and as the Court of Appeals recognized, the focus should be in the Southeast District, Roth, or even if you even want a granular where those apartment buildings are. Um, and so was, was that data um, available? I do not know, Your Honor. And I, I think that's a lot of these cases involve discovery, too. And so, I mean, uh, that's part of maybe the discovery process. I'm sure there are demographic data for in a granular detail. I know that in college admissions, they have very, I mean, and the federal government also has granular data. So I think that data is available at least there is data that focuses and narrows the numbers rather than just focus on the Raleigh area writ large. So uh, you can tell me if you agree with this, but I didn't read the Court of Appeals decision to say that the traffic stop data is irrelevant to discriminatory effect because this is not a traffic stop case. I didn't read the Court of Appeals opinion to say that. Do you read it that way? No, Your Honor, but th that's an argument I would set forth. And then that's you know, the reason why, I mean, there's plenty of other arguments that I've made throughout this case, even below, that, that the Court of Appeals didn't necessarily adopt. But I think it, from, from that regard, just as a standard point, but what, uh, that's the point I would make. What the Court of Appeals did recognize, and this is something that the next point is, that, that the defendant's statistics lack an appropriate comparator. I mean, that, that, that's, that's clear. I mean, it's, um, you know, the defendant provides statistics regarding Officer Kucha's stops and the rest of the PD stops throughout the city. But <coughs> that's not the proper comparison. Again, the proper comparison is uh, analyzing the same percentage of stops by race for other officers patrolling the same location. That's a quote from the Johnson case. So the defendant did not present any evidence regarding other officers, let alone officers operating in the same location. And again, that's How would he have that information? How would he know where officers of the Raleigh Police Department are assigned, given the way the state, under state statutes, mandates that the data be kept? Well, you're talking about the data is traffic stop data, Your right. Honor. There's, there's other, and the ACIS data shows to a granular level of the type of arrest and who made arrests. And, and they, there was a lot of, of, of testimony about how it was able to identify Officer Kucher's ID and, and pull up that information. So that information, again, data is relatively available. It's the issue in this case is how the data was used that the Court of Appeals found lacking. 
Does your candor that you indicated a few minutes ago about the fact that discovery could be helpful uh, suggest that the state would not be adverse to a remand by this court to the trial court for the opportunity for there to be some discovery to fashion uh, an opportunity for there to be data that is available in order to, as the defendant is saying as well, come up with some type of proper measure in the law for both the state and the defendant to be able to be in a position to have this to be more squarely assessed uh, with better or more relevant data? Your Honor, that would be extraordinary, Remini. I mean, it, it, looking on the record, the defendant brought this claim as a motion to dismiss and as seeking to dismiss, to dismiss um, the case at all. I mean, so by remanding it, you're essentially allowing this defendant to have a second bite of the apple with regard to the motion to suppress. And that is clear, and the United States Supreme Court has cl made clear that that analysis is based under the Fourth Amendment. And so in this case, Your Honor, uh, the, 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 the law is clear with regard to the test and the burden. And in this case, the defendant, the way it used the data, did not meet the burden, not only of the clear, clear evidence, not only the, not even preponderance, it didn't even raise an inference of discrimination. And I think another important point, and this is again discussed in the Johnson case, which is something, you know, which also distinguishes, um, you know, just a routine traffic stop from the case here is that the defendant's data fails to account for several legitimate enforcement factors that could justify making different enforcement decisions with respect to other individuals. And that is key, and that is one of the, 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 the you know, important variables that need to be considered in select enforcement concepts. In this case, the record shows that there are at least two important legitimate distinguishing law enforcement purposes. One is the crime-based assignment. This is the trespass enforcement agreement that the, the, the police department entered with the complex, and that's the only reason Officer Kutcher was there that evening was due to that crime-based assignment, the, the, the trespass enforcement and the, the complex request for the Raleigh Police Department for help. So that factor distinguishes the encounter with defendant from other stops made by Officer Kutcher and from stops made by other Raleigh Police Department um, officers too. And so that, again, shows, distinguishes the data uh, on its face. The other reason for the encounter and the nature of the encounter, which is also uh, variables that need to be considered, provide another legitimate enforcement factor. And that's in terms of, you know, the totality of the circumstances. And this is the reasonable suspicion and, and the evidence that. All of that needs to be taken into consideration in this case. And so at the end, you know, statistics are what you make of them. It's the comparison of how you use them and the benchmarks that you use. Let me make sure that I appreciate the extent of your response to my question. Mm -hmm. Why you say that it would be, uh, I don't remember the exact word you use, but I'll just say uh, different. Uh, for this court to uh, remand the matter. Um, would you disagree that uh, if we would accept what the defense has said that we could remand based upon A, the fact that there has been a prima facie case has shown, a prima facie case has been shown based on the statistics alone, or B, that the statistics are a part of 
a showing to establish a prima facie case and a remand would be appropriate uh, to allow there to be an opportunity for discovery potentially or otherwise more facts to be gleaned in order to see whether or not a prima facie case could be reached. Uh, okay, so Your Honor, I think the word I used was extraordinary. So, but, uh, so I think there's a couple problems with that. One is um, this court would be establishing a new, new standard for select enforcement cases if it determined that just based on statistics alone that uh, to remand for a further hearing. And so, uh, I mean, I think, again. Well, I've said statistics plus, statistics plus more opportunity for there to be uh, further data. Since you say statistics alone uh, under the current rubric is not sufficient for selective enforcement and defendant is saying statistics do have a place that potentially a remand on statistics and anything else that may be generated through discovery or something else or are you saying that enough is enough from the standpoint of the state saying the one bite at the apple to again borrow what you have said earlier Absolutely. is all the defendant gets and as a result there's nothing further that this court's in a position to rightfully do well, and your honor and i think that's i think that's the situation here uh, what we have is a record where defendant set forth use statistics alone it ha could have used other evidence could I? and the burden was on it to prevent a case in order to get whether it's an inference of discrimination or a clear preponderance, which is what is established in North Carolina as a standard, in order to get that burden. And so uh, w in order to remand and allow for further discovery and for keep this case on, it's essentially saying that, that this defendant in this case gets a second chance. Oh. And, and even though that, that would be going against the clearly established standards set forth for selective enforcement cases. Um, and I mean, it, it, it doesn't stand to reason why any other defendant, or even if you look in a civil matter, if any other party who at the end loses and then is on appeal and saying, well, we could get more discovery, we could probably enter into more evidence, and now after the fact, um, they, they were in a position to do so earlier and they should have done so. Are you basically saying that we shouldn't remand unless we conclude that the defendant made that prima facie case uh, sufficient to shift the burden. So, Your Honor, I think there's a couple things. One, I mean, I'm saying from a, just a procedural standpoint, this was on a motion to dismiss stage, and so the defendant is seeking a dismissal of the indictment. And so to reverse, um, you know, it seems from a procedural standpoint that would be an awkward situation because the defendant seems that would have seemed to be in a position to say they won their case and they should have it dismissed. Um, but, I, I mean, to directly answer your question, I mean, I think um, there's the standard of proof that needs to be met. Our position is that, that the defendant didn't meet that standard, and so to send it back um, would seem to me indicate that it would be the other way around. Um, so, but, but don't we routinely um, remand if the trial court um, applied the wrong legal standard? So, so on a motion to dismiss on other grounds, not these grounds, if the, tr if the trial court had 
misapprehended the law and applied the wrong legal standard, it's not unusual to, to remand and, and say, here's the correct legal standard, now you trial court um, reconsider this using the correct legal standard. But that's not what, what Justice Morgan was asking. He's saying to remand for further introduction of further evidence. And there's no indication in this case that the wrong legal standard was applied. Well, but I understood the defendant's counsel to be making the argument that, in fact, it wasn't clear um, what what the um, standard would what standard would be applied in these circumstances, and that the trial court didn't appear to apply the the the, the three-step um, burden-shifting framework here. Well, Your Honor, that would go against clearly established case law. I mean, in this in this, although maybe this court hasn't. And uh, not maybe this court hasn't determined it, but the Court of Appeals certainly has set the standard for selection enforcement cases. And that's, you know, the Pope and the Howard cases, that they set forth clear preponderance. That's the standard in North Carolina. Plus, it's also the generally well established standard throughout the country. You look at the Fourth Circuit, you look at U the U.S. Supreme Court, and Armstrong set forth that. So, uh, I mean, so I don't see how that's you know a viable legal argument if this court wants to change the law as it's established and it's certainly fit to do so then 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 obviously it, it can but to i mean that would be to ignore case law that has established what the standard is in these in these situations um but so just to sum up uh it's our position that defendant has failed to demonstrate his constitutional rights were flagrantly violated and the statistics he provided failed to establish that the police conduct was motivated by a discriminatory purpose and had a discriminatory effect. Um, moreover, the police had a legitimate distinguishable law enforcement purpose for the encounter in this case. And for all those foregoing reasons, and those more reasons included in our brief, um, the state would ask this honorable court to affirm the Court of Appeals decision in this case. Thank you, counsel. Rebuttal. Thank you. Um, I'd ask the court to look at the reply brief where we address the arguments that the state has been making that this was only a motion to dismiss and that the flagrant um, standard applies. That's just not borne out by the record and the reply brief goes into the detail about that. But this was a motion to dismiss and a motion to suppress um, from the first time it was filed and the Court of Appeals um, also analyze this as a motion to suppress. Um, <clears throat> remand is a common um, remedy from this court. It happens in motions to suppress frequently. Um, I submitted in the motion or the memorandum of additional authority two cases um, involving constitutional rights where the court had an issue of first impression and decided what the standards were and then sent it back to the trial court um, to have the hearing under the legal standards so that everyone knew what the point was. And that, you know, is the opening of my argument talked exactly about that. If we don't know what the rules are, how can you say we didn't meet them? Um, those cases are Tully and Gibson. And um, as I said, I submitted those. And of course, there are many other examples of the same thing. Um, Statistics, if they are stark, alone are enough. The um, United States Supreme Court has said that in McCleskey versus Kemp and um, Arlington Heights. 
both. They have to be stark, that's the United States Supreme Court's rule, but they can be sufficient. Sometimes that's all there's going to be. And we've submitted a lot of data, especially in the amicus briefs, about the fact that um, black people are stopped and patrolled more often than people of other races. Controlling for things like um, what the crime is. For example, the SAMHSA data, which shows that black and white people use drugs at approximately the same rate. Um, but black people are convicted for using, possessing drugs more often. Um, in Wake County, I believe the figures were 60% of the nonviolent drug felonies are for black people. How does that happen, right? If you never enforce the rules and if you require something more than those statistics, the situation will continue. So what we're asking for today is to decide what the legal framework is, to decide what the standards are, and either find that because this is an unusual case where Mr. Johnson put on evidence that was stark and the state failed to answer it, that he should have had his motion to suppress granted, or if you can't reach that or feel like you need more information, to decide what the standards should be and to send it back to Wake County to sort it all out. Knowing what the standards are, what evidence is required, if they had to prove Southeast Raleigh, let's see if they can find that and get the appropriate benchmark. But it's unfair to tell them after the fact, you know, you had good statistics, but you didn't have the exact right ones that we feel like you should have had. They should have the opportunity and perhaps the state should have the opportunity then knowing what the framework is to offer its own explanations of the statistics. One of the amicus briefs said, no one has won a selective enforcement case in a criminal case ever, as far as they could find. And I certainly haven't seen one. No one has won one in the state of North Carolina. Put that up against the traffic stop data that we have, that we've been collecting for 20 years. Both things can't be true. There is selective enforcement. How can a person, an individual <coughs> citizen, prove that claim? That's what we're asking the court to do. So we'd ask you grant Mr. Johnson's motion to suppress because his statistical evidence showing racial discrimination was stark and uncontested, or in the alternative for a new hearing under whatever rules and standards this court announces. Thank you. Thank you, counsel. Thank you both.